Indeed, he is the ancient of days. He is the one who has, who has always been. He always will be. He is the one who is with us now. Take your Bible and turn with me to the little letter of 1 John. That is the little letter of 1 John all the way in the back of your New Testament as we continue. If you do not have a sermon outline, I really want to encourage you to lift your hand and these men that are running forward are going to give one to you. Um, this morning you especially will need one. We have several passages that we want to look at. And if you're joining us online this morning, I want you to know that you can go to our website and you can have the same notes right now. You can download them. If you have a printer at home, you can print them out. I believe it will really help you be able to pay attention and stay with us. Okay, every now and then I remind you of this, and I want you to understand why we would preach a three-part message on the same text, and it has to do with this overarching truth in every way. Notice what I'm about to say and do. Truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. Can you say that and do that with me? Let's remind ourselves of this reality, that truth in the mind brings hope for the heart. That was exceedingly weak. Um, I, I mean, this is, a, this is a truth worthy of our remembrance. And so I want you to see why we study the Bible, why we sing what we sing. We just sung about all hail the power of Jesus' name, reminding ourselves of his majesty and his glory, reminding what he has done for us. We just sang that he is the ancient of days, and now we come to the eternal words of God, and it's because of this fact that truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. So you don't need a special cord that causes, you know, a chill bump feeling down your spine that, you know, there's certain manipulation of the way we may feel. What we need more than feelings is we need the truth of God. And so this morning, I'm excited. Um, many of us, as we've uh, kind of uh, been kind of coming along, as, as, uh, as we've been in worship, some of you have been here for many years, others of you have been here for maybe the first time, this is your very first time here, or all, much of this is new to you, one of the things that we do in our, in our church is that we carefully study the Bible, and it's because truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. It is because God's Word is rich and powerful, and it, when we learn about who God is and how He works and what He does as His Spirit works within us, we have the hope of God, not only for this life, but far more importantly, for the life to come. And so this morning we're studying, and, and this morning we're going to look at the great subject of the Holy Spirit. And that's because we, we, as we've dealt with this text, he deals with the Holy Spirit. We see that uh, very prominently here, and we need to understand the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And uh, so this morning we're going to, yes, be looking expositorily at this text, and we're going to also see a few other texts that we will look at and break apart a little bit to, expositor to expose the meaning of that. And we're going to see many texts that support a basic biblical theology of who the Holy Spirit is, some, some basic statements so that we can understand 
who he is and what he does. But I want us to begin, notice here your overview of 1 John. For those of you that are new to us, um, this is especially important um, so that you can see where we've been over the last 25 sermons, or the last 24 sermons as we come today. Notice the overview of John. John writes to do two things, to clarify and affirm true faith in Jesus as essential to salvation. He is writing saying, I want to help you clarify whether or not you believe the truth and what is the truth. And if you do, I want you to be affirmed in that faith. So that's the reason he wrote this little letter, these five chapters. We're in the last chapter now. But notice this, he gives tests, fill that in. He gives tests of salvation that surface over and over again. And these same tests come up Um, in each chapter. The test of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. The test for love of who? I've left it filled in. The test of love of who? The saints. The test of a love for God. And then what is the last one, number four? The test of obedience. Do you obey what Jesus has said? And here's an important reminder that when Jesus was on the earth teaching and explaining who he was and about to go to the cross... We must remember that there was fierce rejection, fill that in, fierce rejection of Jesus as the Messiah when he came. They rejected this. They did not believe the testimony of his own words, and they did not believe the testimony of his works. Many of them, the vast majority of them, rejected him. Look at John 1 and verse 11. Let's read John 1 and verse 11 out loud underneath that point. Look what it says. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. You see, that is a fallen world in rebellion, that the truth comes and does miracles before their very eyes, and they still go away saying, no, unmoved. You know, they would follow for a little while, and then they would leave. There were only a few who followed and stayed. We're going to see why and how they followed and stayed this morning. But the last three sermons, and notice my little text over there on the left side where it says part one, part two, part three. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we looked at part one, which is God gives testimony and witness of who Jesus is. What does it say there? Throughout the Bible. We looked all through the scripture and how in the Old Testament and in the prophecies of the Old Testament, in the in the shadows of God's mystery and his work, we see the Messiah being referenced over and over and over again. The New Testament is, is dependent upon the Old Testament for un, a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And then we came to part two. Notice part two. God gives testimony and witness of who Jesus is through John. And so it's not just throughout the whole Bible, but through John's letter, and that's what we're reading here. And um, notice what it says. Notice the three elements of the confirming testimony. God is testifying through the water. And what was the water? That is referring to Jesus's what? His baptism. And remember with me, it's his willing identification with sinners, This is how great God's plan is. Listen to this. This is how humble God's plan is. That Jesus would willingly identify himself with sinners, even at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus did not need to be baptized. Only sinners need to be cleansed from sin. But Jesus identified himself with sinners. 
Notice the next part there, the blood. Not only the witness of um, the water, but also the witness of the blood, referring to Jesus' crucifixion and death. Indeed, his payment for sin. And so we see that Jesus' ministry is these two testimonies. At the beginning of his ministry, the baptism. At the end of his ministry, we see the going to the cross for our sins. But then we also see in this text the Spirit. And this is referring to the Spirit of truth. And this is the Holy Spirit. John refers to this Holy Spirit over and over and over again as the Spirit of truth. And this, is, this helps us. Now let's read the text. It's up there in the box on the page. This will be the third Sunday that we read it. And I want us to see this and, and why we're looking so intently at these three testimonies. This is how God is testifying to Jesus Christ as our Messiah. God wants you to know who Jesus is. God has worked throughout history. He's worked from the beginning for you to know who Jesus is. Look with me, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And then underline it, and the Spirit is the one who does what? Circle the word testifies. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is what? Is the truth. Verse 7, let's read it out loud together. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. You remember with me, it's incredibly important that, that we see throughout history that God is testifying and that there was, there was the need for whenever there was an important issue, a legal case, a judgment case, um, where there's been a wrong, where there is a restitution, that there is witness to that case. And these are the witnesses of God's plan. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is what? Is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You see, the, the testimony that God has made, it's the born testimony of God. It's the testimony that God has declared of his son. He wants you to understand who his son is. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is where? In his son. It's only in his son. Verse 12, whoever, let's read verse 12 out loud together. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So this is God's testimony of Jesus Christ. The last couple of weeks we've looked, especially last week, we looked at the water, the blood, and we looked briefly at the Spirit. Today at the bottom of page one, notice what it says. God's Holy Spirit, though often ignored or distorted, fill it in, is absolutely essential to the salvation and daily life of every 
true Christian. Uh, this, is, this is absolutely essential. And yet, flip the page and notice here with me, why do we often ignore God's Holy Spirit? Why do we often not think about this? You, you just think about this with me. We often talk about God the Father, and we, we, we have a lot of thoughts about that. We have a lot of uh, interaction with, that, with that, that concept of God, and then we really often think about God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived and walked among us. And we, we, we often think a lot about the Son. But when it comes to the Spirit, we, we have some ideas, we have some concepts here and there, but very often we don't really know what to do with that. We probably have a whole lot more questions than we do have familiarity with Him. Well, first of all, why do we often ignore God's Spirit? And I think the first one is the imagery of God the Father and God the Son are more familiar to us. So we, we, we know a father. We, perhaps I'm a son, or perhaps you have a son. Um, you, you, you have much more relationship with those two concepts than you do with a spirit. In fact, when we start thinking about a spirit, we often have all kinds of different ideas of what that could mean. Um, from Casper the ghost um, to the exorcist to, I mean, from, from the innocuous to the demonic. Um, we, we think about seances sometimes when it comes to the spirit. You know, it's the it's the whole confusion issue very often of that. Father and son we can relate to. Spirit very often brings a little bit more confusion. Well, this is because, another major reason of this is because our ignorance of God's Word. Our ignorance of God's Word is often a great part of the problem in why we ignore the Spirit. If we were more versed, if we saw and understood our Bible more, if we read and studied the eternal, glorious Word of God more and had a better understanding of the Scripture, we would not be so out of touch with the Holy Spirit and the concepts of the Holy Spirit. But there's another reason that sometimes we ignore God's Spirit, and it is our sinful, fallen flesh is often resistant to God's Spirit and, and excuse me, to God's Spirit and Spirit. Now, this sounds a little strange, and I'm purposely doing this. Notice it again. Notice the, 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 the whole line. Our sinful, fallen flesh is often resistant to God's Spirit, big S. I'm sorry you can't see that right now on the screen. Oh, you can. No, you can't. Um, they're having some trouble technically, and I'm sure they're going to get it worked out. Um, but here we see there is God's Spirit, big S, and we see God's Spirit, little s. What do I mean by the little s? This is the mindset. This is the attitude. This is the, the, the spirit of the, of, the, of the work of God, the, um, the mentality of this. And we see that God is at work in all this, but 
when our flesh comes up against his Holy Spirit, when our flesh comes up against the attitude and the mindset of God, this is very often what keeps us from looking to him and listening to him. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of my favorite pastors from the past. He was a pastor in England. He was born in 1834. He died in 1892. At the time, he pastored the largest church in the world. And what's really strange um, is that while he pastored the largest church in the world, he was also, um, at the same time, one of the most popular and one of the most unpopular preachers of the world. In fact, on the magazines and on the newspapers of England, um, very often there were caricatures of him making him look like a big gorilla. Um, there were caricatures of him mocking him, mocking his, um, his everything from his appearance um, to the way he preached. Um, there was an interesting rejection of him in many ways while there was an interesting affection for him um, by Christians. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon changed the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon helped the world as modernism came along and as the scientific age came along and many people were rejecting the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, oh no, everybody, this is the truth. This is the Word of God. And then many times he was a lone voice in that message. And he started a preacher school, and he trained preachers to hold on to the Word of God, to not go the way of Darwinianism in the scientific age, rejecting the supernatural and rejecting the veracity of God's Word. Listen to what this godly, powerful preacher had to say about the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he said. Dear brother, Honor the Spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if he were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore him. You would not go about your business as if he were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. I beseech you, do not live as if you have not heard whether there were any Holy Spirit. To him pay your constant adorations. Reverence the respected guest who has been pleased to make your body his sacred abode. Read out loud his last line. Love him, obey him, worship him. Here we see Spurgeon saying, Oh, brothers and sisters, don't ignore the Spirit of God. Just because you may not understand exactly all that is there and, and the relation in the picture of either father or son like you do, that don't ignore him. Not only do we sometimes ignore the Spirit, sometimes we distort the Spirit. And this has always been a great problem. This has been a problem as we see from the book of Acts, as we'll see in just a moment, all the way to the present day. You can turn on certain channels of your cable and see many distortions of the Holy Spirit. And here are some ways, whether through cultural Christianity or through um, imprudent um, teaching and programs on television, either way, notice here, sometimes the distortion of the Holy Spirit kind of really begins, one of the largest ones is impersonalizing or depersonalizing, put in there depersonalizing the person of the Spirit. 
The Bible makes very clear that he is one of the persons of the Trinity. The Spirit is a he, not an it. Very often we refer to the Spirit as it. And that, 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 is, that is patently false. I mean, you wouldn't refer to your boss as an it, uh, usually. Right? Hey, is the boss here? It's here. <laughs> you know, I know some of you probably would. Um, but, you know, the, when, we, when we talk about the king, is, is the king here? What would they, what would they say? He's here. If they were talking about the president, is the president here? It's here. Uh, well, you know, the president, you know, it said da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, it sounds strange, right? Well, see, it should sound strange to us to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Now, I understand we don't have the human anthropomorphic look, the, the, the analogy of humanity in this, but we see this, that throughout the Scripture, he is always referred to in a masculine pronoun. He is always referred to as a he. And so this is God is a he in this, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, and, and we see that in multiple places. So we should not depersonalize the Spirit as, is it, as if it is some non-person power. We need to understand that there is a persona, a personality of the Holy Spirit of God. The second thing that we often do is underestimating his presence, his power, and his purpose. Fill that in, underestimating his presence, his power, and his purpose. And this is the spirit of the age. This is what you put out there to the side, small God theology. This is people who have a very small view of God, small God theology. Their, their understanding of God is not great. Their understanding of God is not looking at his majesty and all that the scripture describes in his power, in his great ultimate being. We underestimate. There's another thing that we sometimes do. We will dramatize, we, we, by drama, we, we distort the Holy Spirit by dramatizing, or how about this one, profiteering, profiteering his presence and his power. We see this um, very often in charismatic theology. We see this in charismatic practice, um, very often in extreme Pentecostalism. We see this in extreme um, prosperity gospel, um, where uh, the Holy Spirit, as if it's some type of genie that can be commanded and, and done. I, I went in France. I, I had a friend who was a pastor, and uh, I was new, was missionary, and he said, I really want you to come to this this meeting, it's a, it's a couple hours away, but we, there's going to be a lot of people there, and I want you to come. And it was a guy from here in America um, that was going to be preaching there. And I, I could describe things to you that you would not believe that, that happened in that meeting. I will say this, that toward the end of the meeting, as the preacher was manipulating the crowd and trying to get everybody up to the altar... Um, to go into some type of altered state of consciousness, he declared the Holy Spirit of God is going to be here for 90 more seconds, 90 more seconds, 
and it got down to 60 more seconds, 60 more seconds, and then it got down to 30 more seconds, 30 more seconds, and me and my friend were the only ones standing out in the crowd as he looked at us, counting down when the Holy Spirit was going to leave. Literally true, firsthand experience. Now, my friends, um, I fear for that man. I fear greatly for that man. And what we have seen very often in when people think of the Holy Spirit in our society, in our culture, and perhaps in our churches, we often think of those images that we've seen on cable television. And so this is very often a great distortion. And let me tell you that there's a lot of those people that are on television that have gotten rich, very rich, off dramatizing and profiteering. And for every one of those that's on television doing that on a broad scope that everybody can see, there are thousands of false teachers in local churches trying to do the same thing on a smaller scale. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, you really ought to read that this afternoon and see what Simon the magician, when, when Paul comes into town and we see the word working through the apostle Paul, when Simon, who was a great magician who had commanded much attention, who had many people listening to him, and he was really profiteering off all of this, he wanted the spirit too. In fact, he offered to buy the Spirit. And here we see, that, and that's even where we get simony, the idea of um, purchasing a religious office that went on for, and it was named after Simon the magician. Notice the fourth one here, the pursuit of sensational experiences. There's often, when it comes to the teachings of the Holy Spirit, there's a pursuit of feelings, of chills, euphoria, dream-filling, dream-telling. Um, there, there's very often a, a, a desire for some type of sensational experience. And thirdly, there's this imagining very often in many people's minds. There's an imagining of a private genie or maybe even spell casting and miracle working. All of these things that would seek to distort the true nature of the third person of the Trinity. And we see that the Bible gives a very, very different picture of those things. I want us to see and, and focus in on, put a big circle around this, this subheading here, or this heading here, the essential role of the Spirit in salvation. I want us to see how the Spirit works in our salvation, because that's really what John was writing about. He said, it is the testimony of the water, it's the testimony of the blood, and it's the testimony of the Spirit that saves us, that brings us our salvation. So I want us to see this. And these next few statements, there, there's some great statements here that I, I want you to see here that, that I believe that will encourage you. The first one is, see the harmonious work of the Trinity. We see that in John's gospel, and we're going to see that in John 16 in just a moment. But the harmonious work of the Trinity, and here it is. Notice this. Salvation is purposed by the Father. 
It is the, po- it's the Father's purpose. And it is accomplished, fill it in, it's accomplished by the Son. The Son is what gains our salvation through His sacrifice on the cross. So it's the Father's plan and purpose. It's the Son's accomplishment. And listen to this. Very importantly, it is applied by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit applies the plan of the Father and the accomplished work of of Christ onto our lives. The Spirit is integrally involved in this. So fill this next statement in. The Spirit applies to the church what Christ has accomplished for the church. The Spirit applies to the church what Christ has accomplished for the church. Does that make sense? Notice the next statement. Just as our salvation is in Christ alone, it is also by the Spirit alone. And so as we, as we begin to unpack this, we start to see that God's Word is showing us, and we'll see it here in just a second, God's Word is showing us that it's not just you hearing about Jesus and you deciding to believe in Him, that you deciding to repent of your sins, you deciding all of these things. No, the The Scripture, when you carefully read the Scripture and even in a cursory read of the Scripture, you can come to the very clear conclusion that God is working in all of this and He is working in all of this through His Spirit. Jesus said that unless the Father draws Him, no one can come to Me. So God is at work in this. God has a plan. The Son is obedient to the plan. And the Spirit is beautifully applying the plan. Look at John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. This is at the Last Supper. This is as Jesus is about to go to the Father, um, go to the cross, and then to the Father. So look what he says here in verse 13. Jesus is explaining, he says, that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not, look at this, look at the relationship here, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then look at verse 14. He will glorify me. Now, who's speaking here? Jesus. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's saying that the Spirit will glorify me. And look what it says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, verse 15, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in these short verses right here, we're seeing the Spirit, we're seeing the Son, and we're seeing the Father, the Trinity working together. So number one, fill that in. See the Trinitarian framework of redemption in Jesus' words above. We see that Father, Son, and Spirit is working in our salvation and working in the Father's plan for our lives. 
Notice number two, notice how the Spirit's role is here. Notice the Spirit's role in the work of the Godhead. That's what we call the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you're not familiar with that, that phrase, you ought to be familiar with that phrase. A lot of times in our hymns, some of our older hymns will, will refer to the Godhead. We just sang a song about the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son. We see this throughout the Scripture, but notice the Spirit's role. And this is very interesting. I think you're going to be encouraged here as you see this beautiful, beautiful nature of God within the work of the Trinity. Letter A, the Spirit promotes and illumines the Son of God as the mediator between God and man. So what does the Spirit do? He promotes this and He shines on it. He makes it light up. He is revealing this. And as you read all through the Scripture, you see that the Spirit is always showing us that there's a mediator. There's a mediator between your sinful heart and holy God, and that is Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. So he's the one that goes between. That's what the mediator does. The mediator brings two opposing parties together. And so we see the Spirit is showing that. The Spirit is highlighting that. Does that make sense? Letter B. The Spirit is always Christ-enhancing. The Spirit is always Christ-enhancing. The Spirit is always Christ-empowering. As you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus, I mean, even from his first message that he preached in Nazareth to the other times when he speaks or something he was about to do, it says, and the Spirit was upon Jesus. And Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that language even before Peter stands up at Pentecost and preach, that Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that the Spirit is always Christ-enhancing, Christ-empowering through the Spirit of God. He is healing. He is raising the dead. He is preaching the truth. You see, the Spirit, interestingly, is Christ-centered. The Spirit is looking and exalting Christ. And we see Jesus exalting the Spirit. And we see Jesus exalting the Father. And so I know y'all are used to me doing this. But when we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we see this glorious God in three persons. And all three of them are working perfectly, harmoniously together in the will of God and in the work of God. So the Spirit is not inactive. The Spirit is not um, out there on the fringe in a way that you can't understand. If you will read carefully what the Bible says, and we're going to see it here in the next couple of pages, we, we see that the Spirit is everywhere. The Spirit is working. And the Spirit is not to be ignored, and it's not to be distorted, but it is to be learned about. It is to be appreciated, worshipped, and obeyed. Notice here with me, letter C, the Spirit's words and works are for and in deference to the Son. The Spirit's words and works are for and in deference to the Son. We don't, in Jesus' earthly ministry, we don't see Jesus stepping aside and saying, okay, Spirit, come rattle the trees and do something and freak everybody out. I mean, the Spirit could do that. But it was God's plan to work through Jesus, the Son, so that we could see and understand God in a way that would be. And we see that, I mean, Jesus is doing miraculous things. I mean, we, we see 
we see the, the weather change at his word. He stands up and he says, peace, be still. And instantly the, the, the Sea of Galilee becomes calm. We, we see over and over again the, the natural being interrupted by the supernatural. But we don't see a, a great lifting up of the Spirit that would cause everyone to look at the Spirit. Instead, what we see is the Spirit is lifting up Jesus, the one who would obey and purchase us for God's glory. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 there at the bottom. This is a very important verse concerning the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ. Notice what it says. The Spirit of God who did what? Yeah. The Spirit of God. I mean, how important is the Spirit to the work of Christ? If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. But Jesus was raised from the dead, and so our faith is not in vain. Notice here, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so this is the, the, rising, the, the raising of Jesus to life, and this is the raising of our lives to life through the same Spirit. And so, fill it in, very important statement here at the end, and I want you to see this. Um, The Spirit is the agent of salvation who gives Christ and his redemption to God's people. And I love David Garner's work on that from Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a systematic theology professor, and this statement is from him, and he he makes real clear, he's, he's helped me a lot in that. But don't miss that, the agent of salvation. Now, have you ever taken a a chemical that you're going to use for something like cleaning? And have you ever read the back of the thing? It will list the the components of that chemical that are what we would say inactive, right? And then there's other components in that chemical that it says active ingredients, right? You ever seen that before with chemistry? I, I had a conversation with Nathan Johns, who plays our piano, and he is a uh, to-be pharmacist. He's in, taken lots of chemistry, lots of biology. And as we were talking about this, I said, the agent of salvation, this is what God is. I said, are there examples of where there's an element of a solution where it's the key chemical? And he said, that, that causes everything to happen. He said, oh, absolutely. It's called a catalyst. The catalyst is what brings the other components together and activates them. And in a way, what we can see that the Scripture is showing us is that, and we're going to see this as we study the next couple of pages, that Jesus, excuse me, the Spirit is the active ingredient of catalyzing the gospel in our lives, brings it into action, causes it to work. And if that active ingredient is not there, it does not work. This is why many people can hear the gospel, they can hear it and not believe it. Many people can mock it, many people can walk away from it, and it has everything to do with whether or not the Spirit ultimately is working and changing their hearts. I want us to see that in in these passages. So how, how is the Holy Spirit the agent 
of our salvation. How is the Holy Spirit the agent of our salvation? Number one, there's, there's six of them. We're going to go very quickly. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of sin. That is the first thing that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts unbelievers of sin. Notice in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. We see a lot here from John 16. Look what it says in verse 8. And when he comes, what does it say? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now I want you to see the next statement here that comes out of this. His convicting work begins the convincing work. So he comes and he begins to convict us. And as we start to see our sin, as we start to see that we have sinned against a holy God, he, this is the first step in convincing us. I mean, Jesus' first words in preaching the gospel, his very first word was repent and believe the gospel. We see that this is a a key part. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying in that, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. There's a problem between you and God. And so here we see that this is is where the, the Spirit's work. Look at letter A there, conviction of one's own sin. You see, we we need to recognize that there's a conviction that occurs of one's own sin. And what is the greatest sin of all? The greatest sin of all is unbelief. That's the greatest sin of all when we don't believe in Jesus. That is the unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is that you would not believe in Christ and follow Christ. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here by A.W. Pink, and um, I, I want you to see this. It's on the screen. I know it's a little small, but I want you to hear what A.W. Pink said. A.W. Pink is another one of my favorite preachers. If you've heard me preach, you've heard from A.W. Pink. Um, just, uh, he didn't live very long. Uh, he died as a young preacher, but listen to, in England, but listen to what he said. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire but have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. Carnality means their fleshliness. People want to avoid hell, but they don't want to avoid their sin. I mean, it was Augustine who felt this pull within his own life in the third, fourth century when he had heard the gospel and heard the gospel. His mother had been praying for him, and he was at the top of his game in Roman philosophy. And he was, he was very, very respected in Roman society. People came, he was very, very respected in Roman society. People came to him from all over the Roman Empire to sit underneath his teaching. And as he heard the gospel and became convicted about it more and more, he started to see that that would mean that his life had to change. You see, Augustine had a problem. He loved women. Lots of women. 
And he even came to the place where he started to see it. And at one point in his confessions, he tells us he prayed for chastity, but not yet. And he's just being honest. And there's others who may never come to where Augustine finally came, which was, well, Lord, you demand all. You, you do demand my chat. You do demand my morality. You see, there's many who just want the assurance that they're not going to hell, but they want to still hold on and love their pet sins. That would indicate, as A.W. Pink says, a great deception. A great deception. So the conviction comes of one's own sin. And letter B, conviction, the Holy Spirit convicts us of Christ's own righteousness. So it's not just that you're a sinner, but you've offended a holy God. And when, when people start to hear the gospel and they start to, to think and to hear about God and what he's done and who he is, there starts to become an awareness in their heart that they are a sinner and that he is holy. And I can tell you that people who hear the gospel and are never confronted about their sin and Jesus is just an add-on to make you feel better, I can tell you right now that they do not have a clear, and very often they do not have a saving understanding of the gospel. The Bible is very clear about what Christ calls us to. Let us see not, not only one's own sin and Christ's own judgment, but let her see the conviction of coming judgment. And how many have said that, yes, there's the reality that we are going to stand before an awesome and holy judge who accepts no sin. He will never accept one sin. Which is why when you stand before him, you need to be completely and totally flawlessly clean. And the only way that you can be completely and totally and flawlessly clean is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. The the cross is my only hope. And so because there is a coming judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of sin. Number two, The Holy Spirit doesn't just leave us convicted in sin, but the Holy Spirit regenerates sinful hearts. The Holy Spirit regenerates sinful hearts. That word regenerates is a very important word. It's a very important theological word that you need to become familiar with and comfortable with using. And the question is, has God regenerated a person? Has he regenerated their heart? Well, to regenerate means to begin again. It means, as Jesus was speaking of, to be born again. And by the way, in Koine Greek, when you're using the phrase born again, it can mean born from above. Very interesting in the way the word is put together. So it can be born from above. Well, how does this come? This is, this is essential to our salvation, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, which, which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have 
been saved. So God regenerates us. He, look at those words, made us alive. So you were dead and he makes you alive. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. He's been made new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, how does this happen? Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. This makes it so clear. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. Not your righteousness, his own mercy. And look what it says. By the washing of what? Regeneration and what? Renewal. How? Of the Holy Spirit. So that's how he saves us. He regenerates our heart. He renews our heart through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, that means justified means to be made right. So to be made right by God, uh, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this is, and that's not a wishful hope, that's a sure hope, the great glorious hope of eternal life. So the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart. Notice the statement that I hear, have here. No passage in the Bible suggests that a person can regenerate themselves. There is no scripture that points toward that. All of scripture reveals that salvation comes only from God. And this is why Jonah, in the belly of the fish, would declare this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Joseph, Jonah is in the belly of the fish underneath the sea, and there's nothing he can do to save himself. I mean, he can't pull out his pocket knife and cut his way out of the fish and make it up to the... I mean, Jonah is gone. He is lost in his sin. And you remember with me, the way he got there was by rebelling against God. I mean, the, the story of Jonah is a glorious... The account of Jonah is a glorious account for us. And when we see the way God would preserve that account for us and the way that God would tell that account for us, it helps us see this very truth that you cannot save yourself ever. And salvation comes from the Lord. And that's what Jonah would declare. So, number one, the Holy Spirit does what? Number one, the Holy Spirit does what? Convicts unbelievers of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit does what? regenerates sinful hearts. Number three, the Holy Spirit brings centers, sinners to repentance. The Holy Spirit brings sinners to repentance. Now, the word repentance means to turn around, or to turn from one thing to turn and redirect to another thing, to, to turn around. As I was growing up, I can remember Pastor Billingsley many times saying, Friend, you're going this way one time, and God calls you to turn around and go the other way. So you're living your life for yourself. You're living your life in your own fears. You're living life in your own sin. You're living life with your own agenda, whatever it may be, um, whether very blessed and sweet or whether very miserable and hard. You're going one direction, and Christ calls you to turn around and to go his direction. And that means living under his authority and by his way. So Number three, the Holy Spirit brings sinners to repentance. You see, there is 
no repentance without a recreated heart. The only way that you can repent is that you have had a heart that has been recreated. So God recreates your heart, enabling you to repent of your sin. At the moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit gives the gift, fill it in, of repentant faith. This comes from God. He, at, when, when he comes and regenerates us, he gives us the gift of repentant faith to sinners. This enables them to turn away from sin. Before, they couldn't do it. Oh, they might try here and there, and it might get a little bit better for a little while, but ultimately, it keeps circling back. Here is when Christ breaks the power of our sin. Look at Romans chapter 8 at the bottom of page 3. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, Romans 8 is a, is a key chapter about our salvation. We're going to see two or three other places here where it's mentioned. Uh, that whole chapter is dealing with the Spirit as well. Look what it says in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ. If you're now in Christ. You're no longer condemned. You're, you're, you're made holy. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're no longer bound by it. You no longer got the handcuffs of sin and death. You've been set free. Number three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. I know you're turning it over, but look at it. Look at it first. Look at it. It's clearly not that we are going to get it all worked out before we come to God. It's clearly that he comes and saves us so that we can be free from sin, not only positionally, but also in our practice. And so it comes from walking in his spirit, not walking in our flesh. Last page, page number four, five, and six. Very quickly, I want you to see the Holy Spirit not only convicts us and not only comes and, and empowers us, but look at number four. The Holy Spirit enables, fill that in, enables true and intimate fellowship with God. We see that before his spirit was working in us, we were the enemies of God. But then he comes and makes us his friends. Notice the language both of Romans 8. Again, here's Romans 8. That passage is so clear on this and showing us what happens when we get saved. Look at verse 4. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, what does it say? The spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This beautiful, intimate, this is daddy, that we have gone from being an enemy of God, bound for his wrath, to being called a child of God. In verse 16, the Spirit, notice who it is, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
Does the Spirit himself bear witness that you are a child of God? Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. That means somebody who's going to inherit. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So much for health, wealth, prosperity, gospel. Throughout the scripture, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel is slammed. Here we see that in this life, even as Christians, we are going to struggle. We are going to go through great hardship. And God in his infinite sovereignty, in his infinite glory, and listen to this, in his infinite goodness, he has designed all of it for his glory and our good. And here we see it's through the spirit of adoption that we can cry out to God. Abba, Father in faith. Notice Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Sounds somewhat similar, but there's some key things here. I want you to see it. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, what does it say? Adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you are sons, God, how did he do it? God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Let's read out loud verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Isn't that glorious? How does that come? Through the spirit of God. So he enables this intimacy with God that we so desperately need. This is why Jesus would say there's a friend that sticks closer to than a brother. And that friend is the Spirit of God. Notice number five. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. So he not only enables, how does he enable every believer? Well, he indwells them. And to indwell, fill it in, means to live within. And so if someone is a Christian, they have the Spirit of God. Again, one of the distortions of this is some people would come along and say, oh, well, you need the Holy Spirit. If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That is hooey, to use a very precise theological term. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, the Spirit of God resides within you. Now, some of you have not moved in the sanctification process enough to find great joy in that. You're only finding the misery of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, I would say, go ahead and keep turning to Christ, keep turning away from the world, and allow the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to not just convict you, but to lift you up and encourage you and to empower you with great joy. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, what does it say? Can you underline that? Does not belong to him. So if you're saying that someone doesn't have the Spirit within them, you're saying that they are not saved, which is a distinct possibility. But it's not from a misunderstanding of the Scripture. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
Now remember that Paul is writing, when he's writing to the Corinthians, is he writing to stellar examples of Christianity when he's writing to the people at first in Corinth? Everybody say no. He's writing to people who have really had a hard time and have really allowed the world to affect them. And in fact, there's many unsaved people in that church. And many, I mean, they have all kinds of morality problems. And so here we see that he is saying to them, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's why you have no business acting like the world. Are you going to take Christ into all of that sin? Are you going to take the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, into that brothel? Are you going to take it into your drunkenness? The Scripture would say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with what? The Spirit. Don't be filled with the spirit of the age. Don't be filled with the spirit of alcohol. Don't be filled with the spirit of pot and cocaine and all these other mind-altering, heart-altering drugs. Instead, be drunk on Christ. Be intoxicated with him. This is the great picture. And that doesn't mean flailing about on the ground. That means obeying him. Notice 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 and 20. Again, he's, he's writing them about their sexual immorality. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Underline it. Verse 20. You were bought with a price. And what was the price? The blood of the Messiah. And then look what he says. So glorify God in your body, because the Holy Spirit lives with you there. So He indwells you. So beautiful in His grace and His willingness to be with us in utter intimacy. Look at number six. I love this one as well. The Holy Spirit seals the salvation of His people forever. And there are multiple places where it talks about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. I've only given us two from Ephesians here. But notice this, the statement here, God's salvation of his people never fails. If you've been saved by God, God will never fail in that. And we can read in Romans again, Romans 8, verses 30 through 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In John chapter 10, no one can pluck us out of the hand of God. And so if that's true, how is that true? How does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with that. He seals us. Look what it says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what does it say? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, underline that, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of of it to the praise of his glory. So the part of the picture is here, though you're saved, you haven't received all of the inheritance that you're going to have because the inheritance that we're really looking forward to is a completely new body that's free from sin and free from sorrow and free from sickness and free from death. And there's going to be no more of a world filled with with anger and hatred and hostility and racism and selfishness and greed and all of the things that bring about the tears and the fears and the sorrow of this life. 
And so that is the ultimate inheritance that, that God has bound for those who are in his spirit. And he seals us with that guarantee until we possess it. That means he keeps his own. He does not allow them to be lost. Now, what's interesting about this, we just looked at it in starting point this morning. One of the ways that we stay with Christ, stay with the Spirit until we are safely in the grave, <laughs> until we're safely in the grave we, and finally actually home to heaven, is that we have the body of Christ. God uses the church family to help us stay with God. That's one of the reasons we talk a lot about meaningful church membership. That's the reason we talk a lot about being connected and being known and being a part of the body, encouraging one another. We see all of the one another's in the scripture. There is total biblical evidence for you having a very real relationship with your church family. Not coming and sitting as, an, as a spectator and then leaving, saying, oh, that was a good one. Or, well, he was a little off today. I mean, that, that, that's cultural Christianity to the max that is not going to take you anywhere except merrily to hell. The true picture of biblical Christianity is that we come to faith in Jesus and in Christ alone by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to live that out with each day and moment of our lives. And we do that in the context of a community of faith. That is what true biblical Christianity teaches. And that's why we lovingly, lovingly encourage and seek to structure ourselves to love one another and to care for one another genuinely. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 29, in verse 32. Look what he says about our, our talk and our mouths and everything else. In verse 29 he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And look what it says in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were what? Sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption, and if we are truly His, we're going to obey what this says. And that's why God's Word is given to us to correct us. High schooler, middle schooler, do you talk trash about your friends? Are you mean to other kids? Have this little bully inside? When you see someone struggling, high schooler, middle schooler, when you, and I'm looking all around the room, not just these over here, but I mean, a lot of them are over here. When you see somebody that's not popular, somebody that struggles socially, do you contribute to the problem or do you love them? Is your Christianity real? Is the Holy Spirit playing it out in you? 
I'll just have to ask them. What about you? The people you don't agree with or you mean to them? You talk trash about them? Somebody offends you? Do you have a hard time forgiving them? Do you allow there to be division and slander in your relationships at home? In your extended family? In your church family? You see, the Holy Spirit changes the way we live. And He empowers us to do that. He can stop your propensity toward being mean. He can stop your propensity toward condemning others as he gives you the grace to forgive them. Look what it says. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then underline that, as God in Christ forgave you. At another more direct moment, Jesus said, if you, forget, for, if you refuse to forgive those around you, I'll not forgive you. So key questions. Number one, God testifies to Jesus as the saving Son of God by the water, the blood, and the Spirit. God testifies to His Son by the saving Son of God. Do you? Do you testify that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father? Do you testify that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah? Friend, I call you to testify to that. And if you feel his compulsion, even right now, to repent of your sins and to believe in him, to trust in him, to testify that you believe that he is the Messiah, I would say do not delay in doing that. And I want you to understand this, that all of the examples in Scripture are public. And that is why we give you the opportunity to come talk to somebody. That is why we want to meet with you. If you have never professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, and by the way, that that winds up in baptism, that is the public profession that Jesus is my Savior. And I am going to obey him. My friend, I call you to testify that Jesus is the Messiah. Number two. Another question for you to consider today is, is there clear evidence of God's indwelling spirit in your life? Is there clear evidence of that? I believe that there is clear evidence of the spirit in the people who know God, in the people who are Christians. So if if there's not clear evidence to you, if you're not sure why or why not? That's, that's a worthy question. And if you would say that the answer is yes, yes, there's clear evidence, then I would just say, okay, good, w- what is it? Can we talk about that? Let's see if you really understand that, because you could be self-deceived. And I have here discussed this with a pastor or a Bible-centered Christian. Someone who knows the Bible. Don't talk to somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to the Word of God. They'll just mess you up more. When your marriage is having trouble, don't go to the person who doesn't know anything about marriage. When you're having trouble parenting, don't go to the, don't go to the person who parents like the world. When you're questioning whether or not you know the Lord, I would encourage you to go to somebody who 
Their mind and their heart is saturated in this book. And they will be honest and help you work through the plan of God's salvation. Amen? Amen. Would you stand together with me as we pray? Father in heaven, I pray that this lesson in systematic theology and biblical theology would help us to understand you more. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would assist us in not ignoring you or distorting you. Father, I pray for all the ways in my life when I have ignored you, when I have ignored your spirit, or Lord, when I have distorted it. And even worse, for some reason, sought to use you, God, for my own gain. This indeed is a grievous sin. Lord, when we are tempted to exalt ourselves and to think only of the moment instead of eternity, oh, Father, I pray that as your Spirit works in our heart, I pray, oh God, that you would cause our hearts to truly be regenerated and that, Father, that as we are regenerated in you, that you would cause us to walk in the truth not live in the flesh, but in live instead in the Spirit. Lord, I pray that, I, I know that you're working on some in this room about whether or not they really know you. I know that the last few weeks you've been really dealing with some of them, and I, I just pray, Father, that, you are, that your Spirit would have his way in their hearts. I pray, Father, that you would be working in them and that they would come and go from being one of the sons of disobedience to the son of the Father who has an inheritance in Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would make our own standing before you clear. And, uh, Father, that we would respond to you in the way that we should. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray that you would help us now to say, Lord, Jesus is all we truly need. And if we have him, we have everything. In Jesus' name I pray for this. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you do need to speak with somebody after hearing about the work of the Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and talk to Ryan and Heather Tinknell. They're to my left. And uh, Rosa and Arhelis are to my right. They'd be more than happy to talk with you, to pray with you. Um, this is an important time in our service to reflect and to think and to pray. But now we also want to celebrate a new member in the life of the church, so I'm going to invite Tim Furry to come up. Tim Furry is a sweet brother. Tim Furry was born in Delaware, and he was raised in Pennsylvania, and he's come down here to South Florida. and. I truly believe the Lord brought Tim down to South Florida. He came, uh, we, I first met him at a men's boot camp, and I just said, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. And I think Tim Ferry really loves Sheridan Hills. I know that because he's standing here. This is one of the members who, I've, as I've met with, has been truly committed and truly took seriously the process of our church membership. 
you know, one of the things that Paul says about membership is that we must be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I believe this brother is going to do that. He became a Christian, and his, his mom, listen to this, as a child, his mom, his testimony is, she led him to the Lord after he heard faithful teaching at his church. He was saved in the 80s, and he was baptized in the 90s. And he's a former engineer. He was with Nav Air and Nav C, and he's currently a high school teacher. So uh, we're so blessed to have this brother. And I, I want to just say to you, if you need to become a member of the church, take seriously. Look at this brother here, took seriously church membership. And I invite you to consider that. We have a starting point coming up April 3rd, and I invite you to participate in that, to sign up for that. Let's welcome Tim Furry into the life of the church. One of the other things that we do uh, in the life of the church is we uh, seek to honor and give honor to uh, people words do, and uh, we don't ever give credit to people. We give credit to the Lord, because it's the Lord who does His work in our midst. First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, verse twelve says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you." The picture here is Paul is telling this church, this young church, he's saying to them, "Listen, those who lead in your church, those who lead as pastors." or overseers, leaders, you should honor them. Listen to this, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So we're doing something a little different. This is a surprise for the Coleman's. Um, I tried to convince them to let me do announcements today, and it worked. So um, I want to invite Pastor Andrew and Marcy up on the stage, along with our PST, our pastoral support team. Now, if we stand for too much longer, he's going to come and preach again, so I invite you to, to be seated just for the next couple moments. Um, I invited our pastoral support team. These are men, and Pastor Jason is also on stage. These are men in the life of the church who lead and who make decisions and who are not just making administrative decisions, but are praying spiritually and making spiritual decisions. Colvin Pinkerton, Carrie Johnson, Jim Rizzo, and Bill Loudon, and along with Pastor Jason. Um, I want to just give them a couple moments to share a couple of words and to bless the Coleman's. Let's see. Raise, raise your hand if you were attending here 10 years ago when Pastor Andrew and Marcy first came. Raise your hand if you were here attending 10 years ago. Raise your hand, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you were not yet attending. Wow. I want to share, I want to share an important kind of a mindset in the process of how 
Pastor Andrew came to be pastor at Sheridan Hills. You know, in, in Baptist churches, <clears throat> uh, typically Baptist churches select their own lead, lead pastors. That's not necessarily true in other denominations. And usually uh, the Baptist churches will appoint a, a, a pastoral search committee to do all the detail work and then bring a recommendation uh, to the church. Uh, our pastoral search committee did not make this process an executive search. We don't, we don't hire a pastor. Now, you know, that may seem like just semantics to some of you all, but it's a huge, it's a huge difference between looking at it that way and, and uh, a, whole different, a whole different paradigm. Our task was to discern who God wants to be as the pastor of Sheridan Hills. You know, that, that, that's not just a, a word play on, on, on a word game. Uh, it's really the difference between doing the work of God in the flesh versus doing the work of God in the spirit. And, and that's not just for pastoral search committees. That's for everything we do in our lives, in our ministries, and everything. Uh, we're, we're continually taught in Galatians and other, other books uh, to operate in the spirit and not in the flesh. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful to our pastoral search committee. Where's the chair? Where's he hiding? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful to our pastoral search committee that uh, uh, did not do it wrong, but sought God's heart. And, and all the rest of us as a church were praying. You know, the difference between, the difference, I'm going to stop preaching. The difference between doing the work of God in the flesh and the spirit is essentially prayer. A dependence or reliance on God is doing the work of God. So we prayed before. You remember that those of you who were here 10 years ago, you remember praying before, praying during, and then giving God the credit at the end after it's all over. So I'm grateful to the search committee. I'm grateful to Pastor Andrew and Marcy for obeying God's spirit. You know, one of the things you got the Holy, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, it leads us into all truth. And he led our church into the truth of who God wanted for our pastor. Thank you. Love you guys. But uh, I met this man uh, when I was a young 20-year-old here, got saved in this room, and he came home from college, and, and he was instrumental in my life, I don't even think you realize as much as, as you were, but instrumental in my life in just sitting me down, explaining the scriptures to me more clearly, and helping guide me and disciple me as a young man. So young people, you never know what influence you're going to have on somebody. Take the time and share the word with them and uh, guide them. But and now that I'm an old guy, you're still... Uh, <laughs> Guiding and influencing me, and I appreciate you so much. <laughs> and Marcy, uh, just being on staff and seeing how you work so hard behind the scenes, um, there are so many events that would not run as efficiently as they do 
without Marcy's hand in there. It's so true. Love you guys so much. Well, I met Andrew when he was three. I was four. When I met Andrew, uh, I discovered that if I ever had a son, uh, this would be one that I would like to have. And not because he was a nice kid. Andrew was a combination of uh, Tom and Jerry, Huckleberry Finn, uh, the Incredible Hulk, Roy Rogers. There's a rumor that one time Andrew got up on the rail of that balcony and walked all the way across it. I don't know if that was him or David Helms, but uh, one of them did and took a dive and lived through it. But just to say that uh, a little over 11 years ago, when our pastor was in need of a church, I mean, when our church was in need of a pastor, uh, we were blessed by a, uh, a search committee that took on a task, as Jim said, of not finding a pastor, but of discovering God's will. Not only a will for a pastor for us, but a will for our church. Uh, our church had gone through some very difficult times, uh, and we needed a time of healing. We needed a time of unity. We needed a time of drawing together, a time where we could have a purpose and so God gave us several purposes during the time. One was the purpose of acquiring uh, the church office building down here. And so right in the midst of the turmoil of not having a pastor, of wondering who was coming, how we were going to find him, God laid it on our heart to just ante up and take care of uh, the need for further expansion. But one of the things that we did in our very first uh, introductory meeting uh, with the church is to say that this is the type of man that we're looking for. We want a man who passionately loved God. We want a man who passionately loved God's word who passionately loved God's people and who passionately loved our community. And so we went on a, on a journey and almost on a weekly basis, the church began to be great prayer warriors. And we spent more and more time not looking at resumes, not looking at, at what we thought would be this perfect pastor we but just began to ask the Holy Spirit to function in our life and in his life. And lo and behold, we gathered up all these resumes and then his showed up. And it was almost as if God was just sitting there waiting until we were ready. And when his showed up, I mean, several people on the committee says, no, we don't want him. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's true. That's not true. <laughs> that, that's not true at all. I'll get a beating for that when I get home later. <laughs> but uh, just to make this short, we were so blessed 
not just that Andrew would come and Marcy would come and be a part of our church, but blessed to see God's marvelous work in the prayers that this church had offered up to him and the opportunity to just see God's good, gracious way of bringing us this man. Uh, what we've done is we've asked the church to write some notes of gratitude and thank you and love to Marcy and Andrew. We told you folks that words were important and that we could email Andrew and Marcy and we could say kind words to them and gracious words. But I had an old friend who lost his wife one time and he spent months reading through the letters that people had sent him regarding Carol, and that was that made an impression on me. So when I die, I want you to send lots of letters to Pat. <laughs> anyway, Andrew and Marcy, this is our joy to give you. If you haven't turned those letters in and you want to give them to Pastor and Andrew, uh, Pastor Andrew and Marcy later, please do that. But what a joy it is to have had you serve and love and care for us and literally answer God's prayer. In our, I mean, could you have heard a greater sermon or a man that loves God's word today? And one more thing before I shut up. Marcy, you have been the best to come here uh, under almost a desire to go back to France, but prohibited, prohibited by God's gracious work in your life. You have been such a joy for us to have and watch you care for your husband and beat him occasionally and do the things that are necessary to keep him in line, but to take care of our church as a couple. We thank you and we love you and God bless. Church, do y'all there we go. Do y'all remember a week or two ago when Pastor reminded us in a service that he had been here for ten years and we had not done anything? I guess uh, <laughs> I said that. he didn't know anything. But uh, Pastor, we love you, and uh, but we really love Marcy. Amen. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> When we did all this searching and all of this, we had no idea that what he was bringing with him was such an asset. <laughs> this lady has worked through health problems, worked through tiredness, but uh, she has given her all to this church, just like everyone else has. Um, how many of you are part of a community group? Every covenant member ought to be raising their hand. They would not be operating it if it was not for her. Uh, how many of you have used CCB? It wouldn't be operating if it wasn't for Marcy. Um, we get a budget out every year. That budget would not be so skillfully prepared if it was not for the spreadsheet that Marcy did. 
She is a, she's a Proverbs 31 woman. Before we go and um, end with prayer, I wanted to share that I too met Pastor Andrew 10 years ago before I had a beard, uh, before I was able, I don't have a beard now, before I could go. I was not married, had no children, and uh, it was right after one of the services, and we were standing right there in the ministry center. Many prayers have been prayed on the stairs leading into the parking lot, and I, I had met with them briefly after the service, and they just asked me, are you married? And I, I said, no, I don't have a ring, I didn't have a wife or anything. And they said, um, we're going to pray for you to get married. I said, uh, okay. It's never, happened. it's never happened to me before. All right. So they prayed, and two months later, I met Esther. So I said, yeah. So I, I said, boy, this is, a, this is a godly man that I want to pray for me for, like, everything. Uh, I've known Pastor Andrew, Mar- Pastor Andrew Marcy for many years, and they have become parents to me, and we love them very much. I can't imagine God's purposes here in these last 10 years without um, using them in a mighty way as He has. And so we want to be thankful. Remember, we want to honor. The Bible tells us to honor our leaders. Uh, Hebrews tells us that we should obey our leaders so that they might lead us with joy but we give credit to Christ. We give credit to Christ because He is the one who builds His church. We can't do anything. He does it. So I'm going to ask Pastor Jason now to pray. I invite you all to stand, and we're going to pray for Pastor Andrew and Marcy in these next couple of moments. And as Pastor Jason prays, why don't you join him and pray as well in the same spirit? So Christ is the the good shepherd, and we are thankful that Pastor Andrew is a faithful under-shepherd. And I remind you, when I preached on this, from this pulpit in Philippians, where it says, Consider my joy, and I showed you the picture of the pastor's prayer room, or the pastor's meeting room, your names get called out every single week. As we know of needs, we pray for you. Pastor Andrew, oftentimes we're on our face before God pleading for God to work in your circumstances and your situations. So know that you're loved and you're under shepherds and specifically these two right here love you and pray for you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we are grateful people today as we remember how gracious you've been to us. First and foremost, we're thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus, That saves us from our sins. Lord, we're thankful today for the reminder of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that we will be ever mindful of the Spirit's work in us and through us. Lord, I thank you for Pastor Andrew and Marcy. I thank you for their faithfulness in serving your church here at Sheridan Hills. 
Lord, I thank you for the example they set for all of us in ministry and in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that you've brought here at Sheridan Hills. And Lord, I pray that as uh, we look to you to say thank you for these 10 years, I pray that you would give us many more years with Pastor Andrea and Marcy. And God, I just ask that you continue to fill them with your spirit. In these days, I thank you for his desire to want to spend time with you and and learn from your word and sharing what he's learned with us. Lord, I thank you also for faithful service in front of the congregation, but also behind the congregation, behind the scenes, and what Marcy has done behind the scenes in making so many things function well. And Lord, I pray that as we look to you and say thank you, that you would be gracious to us in the upcoming years to continue to use Pastor Andrew and Marcy and their ministry here to grow us in you, to grow us to be mature followers of you. And Lord, I pray that as we follow their lead in community groups and growing together in love with one another and reaching out this year, focused on reaching out to others and sharing Christ with others. Lord, I ask that your name would be great. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.